0: Hey everyone, like Jake said, my name is Scott. Um, I'm one of the leaders here at Park Hill. Um, and if we haven't met, I would love to meet you. I usually am just hanging out around the back after the gathering, so please come forward and meet me. I was telling the, the first gathering that um, I do my best to, to meet people, but I'm horribly, horribly introverted. And so I'm, I said if I was ever to write an autobiography, it would be just an introvert trying to meet people. Um, Yeah, I don't know why I thought of that. Um, But throughout this last month, we have been going through Advent, and the theme of Advent has been hope. We've been asking questions like, What is hope? What is hope for the hurting? What is hope for the poor and the vulnerable? And these questions have been addressed over the last three weeks by Matt, Tanika, and Phil. And I would suggest if you haven't, been following along, if you haven't been here or listening along on the podcast, go back to the podcast and listen uh, to those sermons because they've been so helpful for me to be able to conceptualize what is hope, and I think it's very powerful for our church uh, to take a look at what is hope. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is why do we need hope? So for this morning, to answer this question, we're going to be using the readings from the church calendar as our guide. All throughout the world this morning, millions of Christians are going to be reading the same texts as us. And it's this beautiful way for the church to embody what Jesus prayed in the Gospel of John, that we would all be united as one when we read the word together this morning. And so we're going to get into our first text of the morning, which is Psalm 80. So if you want to turn with me to your Bibles, to Psalm 80, we're going to read just the first seven verses of this psalm. It says, Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, Shine, f- shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your, sh- your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we might be saved. In the 1970s, English economist E.F. Schumacher wrote about a trip he had to, the so- to Soviet Russia during the latter years of the communist regime. With a map in hand, and following its directions through every little detail, he realized that he was actually lost. What he saw on paper didn't make sense with what he was seeing right in front of him. You know, those large Russian Orthodox churches with the big gold domes, they were towering over him, and yet on the paper, they weren't there. But he knew that he was on the correct street, and as he's trying to figure this out, a Russian tour guide comes up to him, realizing that he was confused, and trying to be helpful, he goes oh, that makes complete sense. We don't show churches on our maps. And reflecting on this experience, Schumacher wrote, it then occurred to me that this is not the first time I have been given a map which failed to show many things I could see right in front of my eyes. All through school and university, I had been given maps of life and knowledge on which there was hardly a trace of many of the things that I most cared about And that seemed to me to be of the greatest possible importance to the conduct of my life. Schumacher discovered that the mental maps that he was given as a European intellectual had zero place for the faith that he had held so dear. And honestly, I don't think Schumacher's alone in this. We've all grown up. In a society born out of the Enlightenment project to move God to the margins and just let humanity get on with our lives. And this is encapsulated even more in Aldous Huxley's novel Brave New World. That dystopian future that Huxley creates looks at what life would be like if our secular culture had completely taken over society. They refer to the Bible and other books of faith as those old pornographic books. And they say things like, God isn't compatible with machinery and scientific medicine and universal happiness. In this world, the world where God is far off, and the only real things are things that we can measure, things that we can study, or can only be experienced by our physicality, is what brings us, I think, to a place of hopelessness. And even the greatest proponents of this worldview, the worldview of pushing God out to the margins, describe the hopelessness that comes with this worldview. Charles Darwin, in his autobiography, realized where his worldview took him when he writes this, but now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry I have tried recently to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have almost lost my taste for pictures or music. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. And we even see it in songs that are being sung today. I mean, I think of uh, the song Jesus, Jesus by Noah Gunderson. He writes... Jesus, Jesus, if you're up there, won't you hear me? Because I've been wondering if you're listening for quite a while. And our society continuously pushes God to the margins of life. We say, we can do this thing on our own. We've got science. We have medicine. We've got democracy to make sure that the ideal society that we want will actually happen. And then when everything falls apart, when a family member gets cancer and modern medicine can't save them. When planes fly into the Twin Towers because democracy in other places doesn't work. When doing whatever I want with whoever I want as long as their consent leaves me empty and hollow and lonely. We turn to God and we say, why weren't you with me? And this is what the psalmist is putting into words for us. God, where are you? Why are you so far off? Why do you seem so angry at us? When will you come back? And unlike the stories that our secular culture tells us about God, the story of the scriptures is the story of a God who says, I've never left you. And a clear example of this is Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. So if you want to turn with me to Isaiah 7, verse 10. Israel has two foreign powers knocking on their door, ready to destroy them. And Israel's wondering who's going to protect them. And where is Yahweh in all of this? Tragedy struck, and God seems far off. And then we read this. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it it not enough to try the patience of humans? You will try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 is God telling Israel, I haven't left you. Even when I seem far off, I am with you. The virgin giving birth to Emmanuel is the sign of God's witness to his people. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is not some far-off distant deity somewhere else. He is, as the Hebrew can be more literally translated, the with us God. And this is the hope that Isaiah's world needed, and it's the hope that our world desperately needs too. The Enlightenment through the 20th century was the human project to live life without God. From the Lisbon earthquake in 1755 toward the beginning of the Enlightenment period to the falling of the Twin Towers in the first year of the new millennium, humanity has seen the evidence of what life without God is like. And Isaiah stands there, calling us back to the ancient promise of God with us. And this hope isn't just some theoretical reminder that the future might get a little bit better the promise and the hope actually took on flesh and blood. So about 700 years after Isaiah makes this prophecy, we see God step into the human story and become with us in the most intimate way possible. So Matthew chapter 1, we read about the birth of Jesus. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew's being crystal clear here by showing us that Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of the prophecy made by Isaiah. And honestly, this passage sets the tone for much of Matthew's gospel. The idea that God is with us actually bookends the entirety of his gospel. So we see it here in the birth narrative where Jesus is the embodiment of God with us. And then if we move to the end of Matthew's gospel, the very last chapter, we read in Matthew 28, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And so for Matthew, as well as the rest of the New Testament authors, Jesus is the embodiment of that promise, the embodiment of God with us. He's embodied the hope Israel and our world so desperately need. And it's not only the main point of Matthew's gospel or the New Testament, it's the main point of the scriptures as a whole. We see in Genesis, God is with Adam and Eve in the garden. He's with Noah. God is with Abraham. He's with Moses. God is with Israel. And God is with humanity in Jesus. And at the telos, the climax of the human story in Revelation, when God brings heaven and earth together, and the resurrection happens, and the new world is being created, we read this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. The Bible itself is a book of incarnation, a book that tells the story of a God who desires to be with his people, which I actually believe to be the most profound truth of Christianity. It's funny because people always talk about some of the hardest aspects uh, for them with Christianity is the miracle of the virgin birth. But I think the incarnation, the fact that the creator of the world would decide to join us in our humanity is a much harder aspect of Christianity to comprehend. And if we can get to the point where we believe that, where we can believe that the creator of the world loves us so much that he would join in our brokenness, then I think the virgin birth, the resurrection, the new world to come is just brought along with all of that. The incarnation, the way I like to think about it, is the parable of the man who is walking down the street and he ends up falling in a ditch on the side of the road. And the walls are too hard for him to get out and so he just has to wait there and wait there till someone comes by. And finally, a politician comes by and he looks up and he's like, hey, Senator, I'm stuck in this ditch. Can you help me out? The senator writes a law and he bans ditches from being made on the side of the road and he tosses it in and he keeps walking. So the man has to wait and he waits and he waits. And then a doctor comes by, and he looks up, and he says, hey, doc, I'm stuck in this ditch. Can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it in the ditch, and keeps walking. So he waits some more, and he waits some more. And then finally, his friend walks by, and he says, hey, Mike, I'm stuck in this ditch. Can you help me out? And his friend actually ends up jumping into the ditch with him. And he says, what? Are you crazy? Now we're both stuck in the ditch. And he's like, yes, but I've been here before, and I know the way out. Jesus doesn't come to us as some far-off deity who has little to nothing to do with this world. Jesus isn't the big man upstairs. He's the friend who jumps into the ditch with us. And he says, I'm here with you, and I know the way out. This isn't all roads lead up the same mountain. This isn't even Jesus' the way up the mountain, This is God comes down the mountain in Jesus to bring us where he is. And it's because we live our lives in real ditches. We have real problems. For some, it's the hurting and the brokenness that Tanika talked about. For some, it's homelessness and poverty and displacement, what Phil talked about. We all face real problems in our lives, whatever it is, which means we need real hope. And in a world that runs on its own, where God is either the divine watchmaker who just lets the world spin on, or he's not even there at all, our problems aren't problems. They're just the way the world works. If God is just some fantasy story where it's okay for you to worship him in the privacy of your home, but don't let him come out into the real world and start messing with things, then our issues aren't issues. They're just the byproduct of a biologically determined life that just spins on and spins on. But the good news is that in the incarnation of Jesus, hope is real. Because hope is found in the character of God, and that character is embodied by Jesus of Nazareth. God's new creation project to undo the damage done by humanity and bring in the new world, began with the birth of Jesus. Oftentimes when I talk to people about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, I love talking about how Jesus put to shame the powers and principalities of this world, that his death was a spectacle for those powers to come in, but they don't know that actually his death means victory. And it's a beautiful aspect of our hope, and something that we're actually going to get into when we go through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians starting in January. We get to see together as a church what that hope looks like, of Jesus reigning over the powers of this world. But the incarnation gives us a different aspect of hope. The incarnation is God not making a display, but lowering himself in humility to join in and heal our suffering. If God wanted to only make a display, he would have just had Jesus appear dazzling in his white robes, ready to take on the powers and principalities. But instead, he gave himself in a way that the world could receive him, lowly and in the dirt and drags of a manger. This is how our Lord comes to each and every single one of us. He isn't a show-off. He's not the Avengers when the world needs saving, busting up bad guys and leaving things in in its destruction. He's the friend who jumps in the pit, says, I'm with you, and I know the way out. And for those of us who have said yes to that, who have said yes to the call of Jesus and accepted his way out of the pit, we are now brought into this hope. As the body of Christ, we now embody the hope that the world needs. Because the church is the continuation of the hope of Jesus. We are called to be hotspots of new creation and hope in our neighborhoods and in our families and in our cities. It's why Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, can write this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So let's break this down. Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Some Greek scholars will even say it can be translated more like this. If anyone is in Christ, new creation, meaning not only if you accept Jesus into your life as Lord, that you become a new creation, but that that reality, a glimmer of that reality is manifested on earth. This is the hope the world needs. God's people coming back under his loving rule and reign, and in turn, moving out to others with that rule and reign. And this is why Paul can write in his letter to the Romans, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. So did you catch that, what Paul's saying, the world is in the, in the pains of childbirth right now. We wait for new creation to come fully on earth, and we wait eagerly for the resurrection of our bodies, to be completely animated and live in a world that's just saturated by God's presence. Because <clears throat> just as Mary was pregnant with the hope of salvation, the church is pregnant with the hope of new creation. But we don't just sit around and wait for this hope to come. Paul addresses this by saying, and he has committed to us the, ministry, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Let that sink in. God wants us to make his appeal for him to others. That's a profound reality of following Jesus. That God calls us to represent himself to other people. I actually... Had to experience this in my own life personally when I began following Jesus. Before I had pushed God so far to the margins that um, I had experienced exactly what Darwin and Noah Gunderson were writing about. Um, My mental exercise in vanity had brought me to this place where I was being manipulative of girls that I was dating. And this wasn't done fully intentionally, but I was elevating my desires for self-fulfillment over serving the person that I was dating. And so the Holy Spirit called me to seek out reconciliation with two of the girls that I had dated in the past. And one girl I knew that I I wasn't going to ever see in person again, so that was um, just done through text in the best way that I could. But the other girl with someone that I was still relationally connected to. And so I had to do that face-to-face. And that was one of the most difficult and uncomfortable things to do, to have to look someone in the eye and ask for forgiveness and ask if we could start reconciliation in our relationship. And so God moved me through that to show me what true reconciliation looks like to see what can happen on the other side. And he's done that for so many people here in this room. And he wants to do it through so many more people as well. And this is why we, as followers of Jesus and his way, move to the hurting, move to the poor and the vulnerable, move to people in our lives, because we hold real hope. And so now we become the ambassadors of hope, as Paul says. Or as our good friend Gary Breshears from Portland says, we are agents of hope. And our mission, if we choose to accept it, is to be the means by which the hope the world needs is brought to our neighbors, to our families, to our cities, to the hurting, the poor, and the vulnerable. Because our acts of kindness and service toward them is not to just make their already tough lives, a little bit better. It's much more than that. It's to be the God-with-us presence in their lives. And if any of you here have yet to receive the ministry of reconciliation in your life, the door is wide open for you this morning. Doors door is wide open for you to receive reconciliation and the hope that you need so that you can join God in his work of restoring the world through his church. We're not given this hope so that, so that we can just be happy, sit back, watch the rise of Skywalker, and just know that we have real hope in our lives. It's to actually move out toward others and be the hope-filled people that the world desperately needs. And so as we come to the tables, I'm going to call us as a church to three things. The first is to continually read the scriptures as the story of hope, the hope that we need in a hopeless world. We've done some of that this morning, but there's so much more to discover about how the Bible reveals the hope that we need. So a practical way to do this would be to download the Read Scripture app. We as a church have been reading through the Bible in a year, every single year since the inception of Park Hill. It's a value that we hold so dearly, and we want you all to join in on that. So January 1st, we're going to start again, year three of reading the Bible in a year. Download the Read Scripture app. And it will give you a reading plan that you can follow along with. And every time you reach a new book, they actually will have a video from the Bible Project that outlines what you're about to read so you can actually move into the book with context. And we put out in our weekly email, if you sign up for the weekly email, uh, we put out where we are making progress throughout that. So you can always, even if you fall off, you can always join back in. So let's commit to doing that together as a church. The second is to run headfirst into the ministry of reconciliation that God has given us for the city. Phil Cunningham last week gave us a list of practical ways that we can actually serve people in our own backyard, whether it's being a level one CrossFit trainer uh, in City Heights or tutoring young kids, some refugee kids, once a week. The biggest thing, I love what Phil said. He said, it's a lot like working out. The hardest part is putting on your shoes and getting out the door, which I literally experienced yesterday. I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm going to run today. And then I was like, I'm going to make coffee first. And then I never ran. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the hardest part. Once you get out, that, that's where the money is. And another way is City Serve Sunday. So like Jake said, we're not going to be here. On January 5th. This is an opportunity for us to move out as the people of hope and reconciliation to our city. And the third and final thing that I want us to commit to is to realize and accept the reality that you are a new creation in Christ. The practical way of doing this is what we're about to do. We're gonna take communion, you're gonna take the bread and the cup and actually put the reality of you being a new creation into your body. You're eating the truth, which is exactly what Jesus said to do. And after communion, we're also going to have a time for any of you who feel like you just need a, someone to pray over you, a, a message of hope and reconciliation. That time is going to be open for you after communion to come forward, receive the words of your Father over you. So would you guys stand with me and pray as we move into worship? Father, thank you for giving us reconciliation with you through Jesus. That you are reconciling all of creation to yourself through Jesus. And that you let us join in on that. Thank you for giving us a hope that's real. A hope that isn't just hope for a little bit better of a future or a little bit more money in our bank accounts but a hope that's rooted in a person and in a story. Thank you, God. Father, would you move to us this morning? Holy Spirit, would you come near and speak to us? Speak the words that the Father has to speak over us. And speak to the Father the things that we can't make words for. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. So we're going to sing a song first, and then we're going to open up the tables. But during the song, just take time to listen to the Father. Think about if there's people in your life that you need to move toward in reconciliation whether it's a family member or a friend. And maybe for some of you, you haven't received the reconciliation to God yet. This is the moment to do that. So come forward, receive prayer. Take time right now to just Lean into the Spirit and listen to the Father.